Welcome to Research Radio, Episode 8. Research Radio is a monthly series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This month, we speak with Dr. Ginny Sprang, a professor in the College of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry at the University of Kentucky about secondary traumatic stress and burnout in child welfare workers. This week's episode is hosted by Yvonne Brady. My name is Jenny Sprang, and I'm a professor in the College of Medicine Department of Psychiatry at the University of Kentucky, and I'm the executive director of the UK Center on Trauma in Children. Our center is located in Lexington, Kentucky, in the flagship university for the state, and the work we do at our center is uh, to act as consultants, advisors, and evaluators to many systems of care but our longest standing partnership is with the child welfare system. Would you be able to just briefly describe the research that you're going to be speaking about during today's interview, please? Yes, our research team was interested in secondary traumatic stress in the helping professions. And we really wanted to identify particular areas of vulnerability in professionals and workplaces so that early intervention and resilience building efforts could be targeted and focused to those who really need the services. In the literature, the term secondary traumatic stress is often used along with compassion fatigue and they're used interchangeably quite frequently. And in our study, we did the same. We considered both compassion fatigue and secondary traumatic stress to be similar constructs even though um, they're sometimes used differently in the literature. So when I speak about secondary traumatic stress, I'm talking specifically about that constellation of symptoms that kind of mimic post-traumatic stress disorder, re-experiencing increased arousal and avoidance symptoms in response to some type of traumatic exposure. So in this study, we specifically examined predictors of secondary traumatic stress and burnout in a national sample of helping professionals with a specific focus on child welfare workers. And we use licensing boards and certification board rosters as well as membership lists to obtain our sample of around 669 professionals from across the United States. And we ask those participating in the study to complete a standardized measure called the Professional Quality of Life Survey. Uh, That's the fourth edition to determine their compassion fatigue and level of burnout. Thank you. I suppose before we speak about the findings, would you be able to share a little bit about why you chose to study this topic? Was there any kind of previous event or experience in your life or or career that inspired you to develop your interest or passion about this topic? Um, Well, professionally, I'm the national co-chair of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network's Secondary Traumatic Stress Committee. Mm-hmm. And um, my, along with my co-chair, Leslie Ross, you know, am very interested in helping organizations address the significant problem of secondary traumatic stress in the workplace. And this is something that I, as a administrator of our translational research center, as a clinician, as a scientist, have really been interested in for many years. From personal experience, I've had staff that have suffered the effects of secondary traumatic stress due to the 
very toxic and very uh, potent nature of the sensory material that they're exposed to when they do trauma treatment with children. Um, and I've also experienced that myself, you know, working for many, many years with family members of murder victims um, and other homicide victims that you began to uh, feel like that you have taken on some of those symptoms yourself mm -hmm. and it does become a barrier to being good work. So for many years I've led my center's efforts at integrating trauma-informed care into the child welfare system and I certainly have seen the effects of secondary traumatic stress in that particular workplace. And, you know, as I did my work, I've just really come to suspect that child welfare work involves a series of trauma exposures that don't always exist in other work environments. Um, for example, child welfare workers, you know, intentionally solicit very precise details about very horrific abuse, both physical and sexual, during their investigations. They need every detail. They need the story to be told over and over because they're making determinations about the cause of injury. Mm -hmm. They're also required to present these cases in court, and that involves, you know, the recounting of bruises and broken bones and life-threatening injuries in very young children. And we know from the literature that seeing extreme distress and the impact of violence on pediatric populations can be especially distressing for professionals. And it's not unusual for child welfare workers to receive threats of death or bodily harm as a matter of doing their work. They are going into homes that could be dangerous, homes where people don't necessarily want them there. They're seen as intruders. So there's some psychological and physical safety issues, mm -hmm. this particular type of environment that differs from other trauma-related helping professionals and their daily professional life. And I think it's those experiences that make child welfare work potentially um, more dangerous and um, more threatening to the individual. So it's those experiences that got us interested in this topic. So it sounds like it's incredibly worthwhile and necessary area for research. Yes, I mean, we know that turnover is very high in child welfare work. And just anecdotally, my own experience, many workers leave because they just can't take the intensity of what they're seeing on a daily basis, the threats that they have. They just need to be in an environment where there's, you know, more physical and psychological safety. And I suppose that might bring us nicely into some of the key findings that you found from your research, just to maybe share those with, with us now. Yes. So in the study, we were looking specifically at those factors that could predict the development of secondary traumatic stress. And we found that younger professionals in the study reported both higher levels of secondary traumatic stress and burnout. And this is a finding that's consistent with some other studies that we've done at our center, other uh, literature. Uh, and we find that age of the professional is highly correlated with years of experience. Mm -hmm. So that the longer professionals are in this field, the more likely they are to develop healthy coping skills to deal with both direct and indirect exposure. So if you're a child welfare worker, if you're a community mental health therapist, and you're still in the field at 20 years, you've developed some adaptive capacities that allow you to deal uh, with this exposure. 
Um, the study also examined um, secondary traumatic stress across several professional groups based on their occupational setting. So this included um, inpatient behavioral health professionals. That's all types that were non-medical. So um, masters, PhD level, social workers, psychologists, counselors, nurses. Um, outpatient behavioral health professionals, all types, masters, PhD level, school-based psychologists, counselors and social workers, psychiatrists, and child welfare workers. And we found in our study that child welfare workers were more likely to have higher levels of secondary traumatic stress. In other words, child welfare work was the most powerful predictor of secondary traumatic stress in the study over and above all other potential factors that were included in the model. So when you, when you controlled for uh, where they lived, who they were, their race, their age, um, the type of religious activities that they participated in, that the type of occupational setting was the most robust predictor of secondary traumatic stress. So it really supported this idea that we had that child welfare work uh, brings something to it over and above uh, work with pediatric populations like with school professionals or with difficult psychiatric patients, which is what we would see um, in inpatient and outpatient settings. Another sig significant finding had to do with the level of religious or spiritual activity the respondent endorsed. This was a little bit of a surprise to us because the research has been very equivocal um, in this area, uh, but in our study we found that the higher level of participation in religious and spiritual activities, the lower the reported secondary traumatic stress and burnout. We think that this is probably likely because we broadly defined what could be included as religious or spiritual activities. So we didn't predefine this, we let people um, count anything that they did that they defined as religious or spiritual. And so probably what this variable was tapping into was a sense of connection or meaning that may be protective under highly stressful con conditions. Um, so we feel like because the previous research uh, was equivocal, these findings shine some light on the role of this type of coping strategy with occupational distress. Kind of building on that, in terms of child welfare practitioners and what they can benefit from understanding um, this issue, what, what, what do you think in particular would be helpful for them to understand and maybe take away from these findings that you've, you've outlined? Well, we all know that state-funded agencies like uh, the State Child Protection System are underfunded and often resource poor. So being able to identify those workers that might be at most risk for adverse outcome is really important because you can begin to target interventions and strategies to build resiliency towards those that might be most vulnerable to the development of secondary traumatic stress. And this is the key to keeping workers on the job, to improving their mental health and making sure that you're not constantly dealing with um, attrition and low morale. For example, um, organizational interventions to prevent secondary and traumatic stress can be 
tailored to generate positive coping that's very specific to the type of work the worker is doing. So if they're investigations, it may be developing strategies so that they feel safer when they do their investigations so that um, they're not having to recount the horrific details of a particular type of abuse over and over again. That improved and enhanced supervision can be put in place for those workers that are getting a high dose of exposure to traumatic uh, material. This kind of supervision can act as a safety net for child welfare worker, especially when it includes things like task assistance, social emotional support, and very focused interpersonal interaction. Um, reflective supervision is one example of the type of uh, supervisory approach that could be used for those that are getting a very high dose of exposure, maybe new to the job, that need a little bit of extra support. Another strategy to prevent worker distress might include paying attention to caseload mix, uh, especially with younger workers with less experience, and then um, wait, strategies to maximize psychological and physical safety for everyone, having ample security, emergency call buttons, controlled access, accompaniment to dangerous homes, um, and also some attention to how traumatic material needs to be shared in the workplace. So, for example, in my workplace, we have a we have a rule that if you just had a, a interchange with a client, it's particularly horrific, and they told you a story that is really distressing and upsetting you, you want to talk to a colleague about it, you know, you ask permission first. You know, I just heard something. It's really upsetting me. I'd like to talk to you about it. Is that okay? Instead of just bombarding someone with some uh, horrible story that they may not be um, psychologically ready to accept, especially given their own caseload and their own, own burden. And then, you know, editing out some of the things and focusing more on how you feel and how you're thinking versus the gruesome and horrific details of what happened and what you were told. They're all very, um, really quite tangible things that organizations can implement. And I, I really like that last one you mentioned that you have in your organization there about the conversations between practitioners. Do you find that it's having a positive impact within the team? I think it does. You know, we have increased awareness mm-hmm. that, that those things matter. And we actually call it um, sliming on somebody else. We say no sliming on your colleague. It's kind of a crude and silly term, but I think it kind of captures exactly what happens when you take all of your, you know, all of the stuff that you've just absorbed from a client and then you pass it along to someone else who now has to carry that around, those visual images and that horrific story as well. So um, people use that term. People will say, you know, remember, no sliming, or they will pay play uh pay particular attention to editing what they say in groups, especially if you've got young students there. Um, I think we've become particularly attentive to protecting them from some of this material because they're new to the profession and they haven't developed, you know, the capacity yet to put it all in perspective and to compartmentalize. The last question I have is about tangible outcomes of your research and any ways in which your research has affected practice or the lives of service users. I guess in a way, would would be fair to say that that last example you gave about the sliming is a way that the research has impacted practice? 
I think that, you know, as we've done this research, we've had to pay attention to our own policies and practices. But I think in general, over the past, you know, five years, I think that agencies are being more open um, to having these discussions. I think 10 years ago when I tried to have a conversation about secondary traumatic stress, it was, oh, my gosh, we don't need to open up that can of worms. Um, now people are asking us for strategies to become more secondary traumatic stress informed. And we've been lucky enough to get some funding to implement the Child Welfare Trauma Training Toolkit in many areas of our state. And this has been an important first step in creating a trauma-informed child welfare system. So part of this work is involved working with child welfare professionals to develop personal care strategies, to build their own resiliency, and self-awareness and reflection has been part of this process. So we have implemented some STS screening activities in our work with this group, and our next step, we think, would be developing organizational tools to help agencies assess the degree to which they are becoming STS-informed so that they can, you know, assess their needs for training and policy change and then track their progress over time. Wow, that's incredible. It's such a long way to come in, in 10 years, isn't it? Yes. It must yes. be really nice for you to see that and to kind of see things going in the right direction. Right, yeah, we're feeling very hopeful. At part, we have a lot of requests about um, tools and resources on secondary traumatic stress. And my colleague Matt recently put out a lit review on organizational trauma. And the secondary traumatic stress um, compassion fatigue one will be the kind of follow on from that. And there's a real um, keenness, I guess, for, for that to, to be out there, which is yes, in, in yes. terms of self-care and, and people thinking that, OK, it's OK for me to think about how I am doing in this, you know. I think that the trick, um, <clears throat> what we have found with the self-care language is that self-care is important to build resiliency and we want everybody to take personal responsibility for their own psychological health. You know, because if we, you know, we have an ethical responsibility mm -hmm. to be um, not harmed by the work that we do. Our clients expect us to be okay. But we want to be careful that we don't send the message that it's just up to the individual because organizations do play such a key role. A toxic organization, an unsafe organization, an organization that, that puts so much pressure on people to do work um, that is, you know, psychologically damning you know, it can override any individual self-care strategy. So we just want to make sure that the message is this is shared responsibility and um, an STS-informed organization, you know, promotes self-care strategies, but they also take a look at their own policy mm -hmm. practices and make sure those are consistent with a resilience-building lifestyle. You've been listening to Research Radio, Episode 8, a conversation with Dr. Ginny Sprang. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about this episode's topic, Research Radio, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.parkcanada.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Part EIP. That's P A R T E I P. 
Thanks for listening.